podcasted. I always said the laugh at that last time. Mike Snickers every time I say the tagline. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 12th episode of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach here in New York City, and I am joined once again by my graduate school classmate, Mike Thatcher. Mike, how you doing? Good. How are you? Fantastic, as always. Um, and we have a very special guest today, Martine Green Rogers of Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Martine, what's up? Hello. Not a whole lot. Just, you know, drinking my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, so when I asked Martine to be on the podcast, I was so excited that I forgot to specify um, Eastern time or Pacific time. Yeah. So, Martine... <laughs> was wonderful enough to do a podcast with us at 9 o'clock in the morning, her time, and for that we're very grateful. Um, Martine, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival? Uh, well, uh, it's kind of funny because my, right now, technically, I am just with them working on the Play On project, which is the project that uh, caused a lot of controversy a little earlier or a little later last year, um, about um, turning, or, you know, sort of, quote-unquote, translating Shakespeare's language into modern English, but in some ways different from No Fear Shakespeare, in that there are a lot of rules put on us as dramaturgical playwright teams to make sure that we are honoring things like the meter and the rhythm and the rhyme and uh, a bunch of other things. So, you know, a, sort of a more sort of rigorous, both in a scholarly and artistic way. And then I am also an assistant professor at the University of Utah. So I kind of live with one foot in the academy and one foot in the practitioner artistic world. So that's what I do. So what started the whole project anyway? Like, where did the idea come about and, and who decided that this was going to be something that the world was going to need? <laughs> so, it's actually been a project that has been in the works for quite a while. Dave Hitz, um, you know, philanthropist, longtime uh, patron at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, came to Libby Apple, who was the former artistic director before the current one, Bill Roush, and that uh, brought that idea up to Libby, and Libby at the time was not interested. It kind of pitched the idea several times over the years in between uh, Libby's time at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and now Bill Roush's time at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And it took a while before anyone was interested uh, Louie, for example, said that she felt, uh, and Louie is the current director of literary management and dramaturgy at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, kind of didn't want to do the project at first because she felt that it would be essentially, as she calls it, a quote-unquote career ender because of how much we tend to revere Shakespeare's words sure. and his idea of playing with them. Uh, seemed to be something that most people might not be interested in. But then over time, as she talked to Dave Hiss and talked to others, she realized that maybe there is something to this, that potentially there is a declining interest in some demographics about Shakespeare because the language could be a barrier. And so then the question became, how does one honor what language is already there while also potentially at least opening up the door to a new generation mm -hmm. about the work. And so that was really what the impetus of the, pro the project was. It was never intended in some of the ways that people were talking about it when the controversy sort of first came up. It was never meant to be anything that actually replaced Shakespeare or anything just unimaginable in that way. It was meant to be a companion piece. How do we create an opening, a door way into a new sort of love and understanding? And considering Dave Hitz was interested in funding the project, you know, what better way to put some 
money into some artists' pockets than to make them go through this exercise with Louis. So I, that's the impetus of the project. So then, I guess it's the the controversy then from this comes mostly from the idea that this is the the new way to look at Shakespeare's works. Like this is the new definitive translation, and that's not really the case, right? The, the case is more that it's something that's interesting, it's something that's new, it's something that's fresh, and it's something that can be a different, I guess, take on Shakespeare rather than a replacement, right? Correct, yeah. And in some ways, the, it's almost as if, I mean, in some ways, how to look at it would be thinking about what would you do with a translation of something or an adaptation. Not that they're either one, but just how these could be used. You could go to the original and do that, or you could do one of these, or you can read them both in tandem, or you could just read one or the other. And, and you know, in some ways, I think in terms of reading one or the other, most of us, I think, who are working on the project feel pretty strongly that even if you were going to pick one or pick, you know, one of these out of the play on project to do, that you should still go to the source text and look at that. So I think it was meant, it was just meant to be something else, another choice out in the ether as opposed to replacement of any sort. And what, the thing that I find most interesting about this is that Shakespeare is translated into other languages all the time, right? I mean, you know, right. there's French Shakespearean text, there's uh, Russian Shakespearean text, German Shakespearean text, I'm sure. Just like we have you know, American translations of Chekhov and Rostand and Ibsen. So the idea of a translation isn't far-fetched because people enjoy Shakespeare all around the world, right? Correct. And I think the thing that really lent itself to the controversy is that a lot of people who are immersed on a regular basis in Shakespeare's language always say, well, yeah. Shakespeare is English. Um, and I think the answer to that is always yes, it's English. But it's early modern English. And as we know, our language shifts and changes on a daily basis. You know, there are words like ginormous that, you know, once upon a time <laughs> weren't part of our lexicon and is now a very, in some ways, integral part of our lexicon. And sure. so how do we adapt to that as our language shifts and changes and the way we use it shifts and changes. And I think to say that something that was written at the beginning of the early modern period in terms of English is, is, is somehow still immune to the issues of understanding and meaning is slightly absurd. There, I mean, there's a reason why Shakespeare editions are heavily annotated. It's because the language and the meaning of these words have shifted over the course of years, and, and if you didn't know, you know, especially considering Shakespeare had a tendency to invent and use a lot of colloquial language, to, to pretend that we don't need that information is absurd. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think, uh, and I, but I think there's also, and in, in, in terms of, and this is sort of the educator in me coming out, I think access is really important. Because I remember my own background with Shakespeare. If anyone had told high school Martine that she would be a Shakespearean dramaturg when she was when she grew up, I would have probably hit them in the face and called them a liar. Because I didn't like Shakespeare. I thought it was small, I thought it was dull and it was boring. And who who wants to read this? I remember the first. Shakespeare play I ever read was Julius Caesar, which is actually now one of my favorites. But at the time when I read this, I was like, this is terrible. Who, why? <laughs> and I remember, you know, almost crying as I'm reading this thing. It's like, this is so boring. But I think in some ways a lot of it has to do with how a lot of people are introduced to Shakespeare. If you're not introduced to it in performance, because we have to remember Shakespeare's text, although we like to revere it for its written written, you know, in book form, etc., as, as a piece of dramatic literature, it was also meant to be performed, and sometimes 
seeing it performed can be an access thing. You know, how many people of different varying incomes, you know, if you started to think about how many people, for example, of a lower class or lower income gets to go to a place um, and see Shakespeare on a regular basis, sort of develop the ear and the brain needed to process that language as it's being performed, that, that takes practice, it's a skill, and if people don't have access to that, then how do they develop that? And then that's the first way that they encounter Shakespeare is via the written text. It might just seem like a totally foreign language. That was a really long rant. Sorry about that. But <laughs> I feel like the real answer here is to start inserting emojis into Shakespeare's text instead of echophonesis. I actually, uh, I was actually just touring with the Texas Shakespeare Festival to high schools, and we heard a lesson being taught where they were using hashtags. They were talking. About, they were talking about Macbeth, and during the banquet scene, they kept going hashtag King's Giving, and I it just made my skin crawl. But yeah, it's they're trying new ways to get students involved, and you have to applaud that. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on where you sit with it, but, you know, I definitely, as an educator, understand that. You kind of have to get them interested first, and then really develop that love of uh, the, the language as written and the language as spoken after that. If you can't get them interested in the first place, because it feels antiquated in some way, shape, or form because of the language or whatever then it's, it's just hard to, de to develop that love. Right. And like I said, in the end, for me, it's because, you know, I think if I hadn't had a very lovely professor of mine whose name is Sally Shedd at Virginia Wesleyan College really open up the possibilities of Shakespeare to me, I probably wouldn't be a Shakespeare dramaturg now. That was where I learned how much I love Shakespeare. But then again, getting back into access, there's another problem. I had to go to college in order to encounter someone who had such a fire for Shakespeare and what it could do and the stories it could tell in order for me to, to discover my own love for it. So right. if I hadn't gone to college, would I still hate, or not hate, hate's a very strong word, but would I still just be like, ah, Shakespeare, maybe. <laughs> So, <laughs> so I think uh, this type of project is really important because it creates potentially a, a way and a way into accessing the language that then might actually spur someone to want to read the rest of it. So, one one thing I want to ask about the translations themselves then is, I mean, there there are a large multitude of different playwrights and dramaturgs on all of the different projects, yes? And yes. One, of the, one of the things that I guess I wanted to ask about it is, is there a set of rules or is there a pattern or uh, a template that all the playwrights are asked to follow during all this? Or is it just kind of, everybody do your own thing and we'll, we'll see what happens with the translations? I think it's a combination of both. We do have rules. We have been told that we're not allowed to change the time period. We're not allowed to change the history around it. So essentially, and, and then also honoring the, the rhythm, honoring the rhyme, things like that, which actually is part of the reason why it's such a vigorous exercise, because in, in that way, if there's a word that, you know, either we don't use much anymore or has sort of fallen out of use, how do you honor the intent of that line and the meter and the rhyme of that line while still, and, and, and all the lines surrounding it while still, you know, like how do, you, how do you wrangle with that? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I think in some ways it's actually both a really uh, challenging task that we've all taken about, especially considering how diverse the group of people working on it is. Because, uh, I mean, most of the playwrights, you know, obviously have their own very specific voice, and somewhere they're being asked to take on, to sort of merge their voice with another voice in a way that isn't completely destructive to the text itself and to the story being told. And I think that's also part of the checks and balances of why there's also, not that 
you know, I'm pretty sure all of these playwrights are perfectly capable of, you know, doing this, but I think also having a dramaturg attached to each project, and there are also a couple of dramaturgs who've been employed in general to just sort of help supervise and be a resource on the project is really important because, you know, I feel dramaturgs are definitely the uh, sort of option givers, option providers, and so if something's not quite right, part of the job would be to figure out, okay, how do we honor this playwright's voice and Shakespeare's voice and find a word that is right or as right as possible Mm -hmm. in, in a particular situation. So it's quite a vigorous exercise, and I have to admit, so far it's been fun. I'm working on two of them, and I've been kind of lucky that my... My second playwright has been busy, and so she's not going to get cracking on hers until summer. <laughs> so I can kind of focus all of my energy on one as opposed to trying to balance both of them right, <laughs> right. So on that note, actually, you have – it's Time of Athens then is – or not Time of Athens, I'm sorry. Um, Two Noble Kinsmen <laughs> is already complete, yes? It is not almost complete, but we are almost – there. Um, right now what is happening is we have a reading scheduled at the University of Utah in April and then a year from that April, so then April 2017, we'll be doing a production of it at the University of Utah. So then the production is already scheduled, which is yes. pretty exciting. And how, how many other productions are scheduled? If I remember correctly, there have been... It's either two or three so far that have already happened. I know there was a time of Athens and there's a Pericles, I think. Um, yeah, there's either two or three that have already happened, and then there are two or three in the hopper. So I think we're the next one in line, and then there's either one or two after us. So essentially there will be roughly about five or six of these that have been produced by mid-2017, if I remember correctly. So then another thing that's an interesting element to me is that it seems the project seems to have started in the deeper crevices of Shakespeare's canon with Pericles yeah. and Time of Athens. And is was that done by design? Is that on purpose? I think the answer is yes and no. I think, you know, back to stirring up a love for Shakespeare, you know, to... Let's be honest, there, if you ask people what Shakespeare plays that they know, there's a certain few that will always drop off of people's tongues. Like, for example, I'll just ask you, what are the first couple of plays that come to mind when you think of Shakespeare? Uh, Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, Othello, Julius Caesar. Right, All exactly. All the ones that we were taught in then, high school, pretty yeah. much. Right, exactly. Yep. And then there are a whole lot of, you know, there's quite a few that people, you know, may or may not know about. You know, usually it's the later ones. Um, you know, Shakespeare was, you know, starting to transition out and started writing with other people. So then, you know, obviously the authorship is a little disputed. Mm-hmm. And so you start to get into those later ones and people are like, eh, you know, either they've never heard of them or if they've heard them, they've definitely not seen them. Sure, <laughs> um, sure. Because, like, you know, a good example is the last production of Two Noble Kinsmen that happened at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, I think, was in 1994 wow. or somewhere around there. So it's been a very long time since Two Noble Kinsmen has graced some of the major stages. Um, And it's just a rarity. I think uh, I was reading maybe about two or three years ago. There was one out in D.C. Maybe it's four years ago. Um, So, I mean, just people aren't doing some of these very often. There's been a sort of revival of Pericles right now because of the production that Joe Hodge just did at Oregon Shakes has been traveling around. Like I know it was at the Folger Shakespeare Theater for a little bit. I know that it made a pit stop at the Guthrie for a little bit. Um, stuff like that. But, you know, just people don't usually see these. And I think part of the reason why is because the language is a little tougher. You have, you know, multiple authors potentially, depending on, you know, where you subscribe in terms of the history of those plays working on it, and, you know, there are a lot of anachronisms, things like that that people just don't know for one reason or another how to wrap their brains around it, so they just kind of shy away from them. So I think in some ways doing that, or sort of going through this exercise on those plays, I think 
is helpful in making them back to accessible so that people are like, shouldn't, you know, no, you shouldn't actually be afraid of these. That they're kind of fun and they're exciting despite some of the things that are going mm-hmm. on. Like, I love Pericles. But in general, not too many people see Pericles. There's not a whole lot. Of, I mean, I think recently people have been a little bit more interested in it. Um, but, you know, and then part of me wonders how much of that had to do with the fact that this project has pushed some of those names back into the forefront. Yeah. Um, Sure. So I think, so I think the answer is, in some ways, yes, it was on purpose, as as an exercise of can we make some of these plays that people don't want to touch as often a little more exciting to look at. Um, but I don't think, in some ways, the order. I, I don't know if it was like everyone set out to say, okay, let's push some of these, you know, ones that are quote unquote like harder out there first and then kind of go from there. I think it's just kind of the way it happened. <laughs> okay. Um, I wanted to take a minute um, with one of the the texts that's already been translated, uh, Time of Athens, and I wanted mm-hmm. us to just take a second and read um, the original text and then the mm-hmm. text uh, translated. And if you have any examples uh, on you from uh, two noble kinsmen that you'd actually like to contribute, that would be fun as well. But this is just what I was able to find online by Google search and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. Mike, would you mind reading the Timon, this excerpt from Timon's uh, soliloquy, railing against the city's corruption? Sure. So, uh, slaves and fools, pluck the grave, wrinkled senate from the bench, and minister in their steads. To General Fleur, uh, <laughs> to General Fliffs, uh, convert or the instant green virginity, do it in your parents' eyes. Bankrupts hold fast. Rather than render back out of your knives and cut your trusters' throats, bound servants steal. Large handed robbers, uh, your grave masters are and pill by law. And then, um, wow, cold reading that is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps not as accessible as the... Totally did it. Um, And then Cavender's translation says, Servants and clowns, kick the grizzled old senators out of their offices and legislate in their place. Innocent virgins, turn sluttish now. Why wait? And do it while your parents watch. Bankrupt? Keep your money, and if your creditors demand payment, pick up a knife and cut their throats. Workers, steal. Your bosses are crooks in fine suits. Gangsters raking in their loot, legalized pirates. Wow. <laughs> I, I don't know what to think of this. Because one of, one of the things that j- jumps out at me is it seemed as though it was, it was much easier to read smoothly than Shakespeare's older text, in which some of the, some of the words, like the, the phrase, out with your knives... We don't we don't say anything like out with your knives anymore. We say take out your knives or pick up your knives or draw your knives or, or whatever. And so in that sense, it seems um, more easy to convey the message, more easy to to make the argument. But the another thing I'm noticing is that the the verse, the the meter in the translation isn't uh, isn't as spot on as the the verse in the the first one. Am I right in saying that? Um, I, I'm, the answer is probably yes. I, I am not looking at it at the moment, but I can also pull it up, take a look at it. Um, I guess, the, 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 for example, there's, there's trochies in the second version that don't appear in the first. Um, there's a lot more anapests. There are, um, in, in the, in the second one than in the first, but also it's easier, like if I were to, pick one to to uh, perform in front of high school students like I wouldn't mm-hmm. pick the first one if, especially if I were using high school actors sure you know I mean the theory we have all the time in Shakespeare is that yes the language there's a there's a little bit of a distance between our society and Shakespeare's language but if we have seasoned actors doing the the text then it should be a pretty simple matter of just emotional life and behavior but when you have high school kids performing to a high school audience or even, you know, college students performing to a college audience, it, it there, there's, that distance is somewhat magnified and using more accessible language seems to me 
something that would sort of bridge that gap. Right. And, and I'm, I'm with you on that. I think it really depends. And I think that's the thing that's really important about this project is the distinction that, you know, in some ways one should really look at it as a tool. If it's something that can be brought to uh, an audience and sort of draw them in and to the story, et cetera, then why not use it? If it's something, you know, but if you're if you're really interested in sort of wrestling with the language as is, then, you know, go with the original. Mm-hmm. Um, I finally managed, oh, I finally managed to pull it up, I think. <laughs> oh, hey, there we go. Yay. So, um, yeah, you're right. And I, think, and I think that's the thing that's really also hard about this process. Like I said, it's a really sort of rigorous exercise. How do you, you know, get... The, the, the story across while also honoring all of these other things. And I think, you know, you're right in some ways that this particular translation, um, you know, had, had sacrificed some things for others. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be the thing that, you know, it, as, an, as an individual sort of teams, we're going to have to figure that out. You know, if you have to make a sacrifice, where did that sacrifice yeah. come from? Does it come in the language, in terms of the meter or the rhyme? Or does it come, you know, I think it, it, I think in some ways, or at least where I stand, I'm not going to sacrifice the story. So then, so more than likely, probably anyone that I'm working on, it might be where things aren't quite as, as, you know, like, yeah, you might have some, some language that's a little off in order just to keep the actual meaning in that moment intact. So, like I said, it'd be really interesting. I'm actually looking forward to the challenge because I actually don't have um, the the Two Noble Kinsmen one, one yet. I'm actually not due to get that from my collaborator uh. until uh, Monday. So, oh. you're catching me you know, a, a few days ahead of time. But, uh, so I will have that and we'll be digging into it. One of the things that is kind of fun about this project is that since my collaborator is in-house, he's a playwright uh, and, and colleague of mine at the University of Utah, his name is Tim Slover, uh, because of that, it's been, it's been interesting because we can kind of just walk down the hall and harass each other about the project. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so- in, in a way that... My, my other collaborator, she's based in New York, and so sure. I can't, it's not, I, not that it isn't easy to harass someone over distances, but it's a whole lot easier when the person's down the hall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then, you, you say there are, there are a certain number of dramaturgs that are sort of widespread across the project, but it's also, it's also very clear that uh, each play has its own assigned dramaturg. Like, for example, you are assigned to Two Noble Kinsmen and Comedy of Errors. Um, what yeah. is the benefit to having one specific uh, dramaturg tied to each play, but then having the the rest of the dramaturg sort of contributing as a general force? I think the upside is, just like any process, you know, I think one of the strengths, for example, of dramaturgs in a production process is that we function as first audience. And so in some ways, we're looking at a play in a way that people who have been entrenched in it every day, all day long, might not have that, you know, you know making some generalizations, but not be able, might not be able to have that kind of objectivity. I think that's the thing that the sort of general course of people who are resources on the project will function as. They, they become the dramaturgs for the dramaturgs. Mm, because as I start to... As I start to dig into the language with both of these plays, in some ways I'm going to become invested in a way that maybe there are options that I may not see because I've been entrenched in a particular option too long. And so I think you know it's going to be really helpful to have just those outside eyes to take a look at it and say, oh, maybe there's a way to not sacrifice something in a particular moment because here's an idea or whatever. So I think it's really back to the whole idea, the idea of checks and balances, that there's even someone outside hanging around the project that can also check the, the two people who are enmeshed in the project. So I think it's going to be, and that's why I said it's a really rigorous exercise. There's a whole lot of you know, artistic and academic 
slash scholarly energy going into this project to make it the best thing that it can be. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that Mike and I were talking about on the last uh, podcast is whether some people think this is controversial or not, it has succeeded in getting people to talk about Shakespeare. Which um, is a win. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. Like, most, any talk of Shakespeare, any publicity for Shakespeare is a good thing. Uh, do you agree? I do, actually. Uh, I ended up, uh, because there's so much brouhaha at my own institution, because I think, you know, of course, one of the funky things about having a dual life both inside the academy and as a practitioner is that I am not uh, immune to criticism within, you know, both worlds for working on this project. And, you know, in some ways I know that there have been some very vocal Antithesis, contradiction. Exactly. Exactly. And so, but the thing that's happened that has been a beautiful thing to me, and that's the thing that actually really got me into thinking that, you know, not that I really had a whole lot of reservations about working on the project to begin with, because as far as, you know, like I said, I'm always about access and about interest and things like that as an educator. But watching my students rally around the project and our involvement in the project because, uh, in general, part of the reason why I went, you know, went through the, the process of seeing if I could get the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and, and the funders of the project, Dave Hitz and his brother, to agree to letting us do the project is that I actually thought it would be a really good educational experience mm-hmm. for my students. Um, because now they're stuck having to go through the same exercise I'm going through, and I think that's like it's a bad thing. But I mean, really, they're stuck having to wrestle with this language as well. You know, starting on Monday, our new play workshop class at the University of Utah, we will be workshopping this play up until the reading. So they're going to be digging for the next month and, and, and a week into the language that my colleague Tim has created. And they're there to check us as well. So yeah, means, because eventually it's going to have to come down to actors speaking this. So that's, yeah, right. that's very true. Right. So, and so watching my students get really excited about the project as we brought this to them to tell them that we were thinking about doing this, watching the, their excitement as, you know, we secured the project, and then watching their excitement and disappointment and all the other myriad of emotions that came as, the larger theatrical and English and voice world came down on the project by the time of legs at some point, um, you know, and them picking up the mantle and fighting for the project as well. I mean, I've had more conversations about Shakespeare in the past, like, I would say probably like six or seven months than I've had since I've been at that institution. Sure. Mm-hmm. That makes me super happy to get people as excited about Shakespeare as I am. So I think that project, the project has already done amazing things just within my own institution. And I would not take back our involvement in the project, whether it's a success or failure. And I think that's the other thing about the project that you know all of us going into it are really realistic about. This project could illustrate that we should never touch Shakespeare again. Mm. <clears throat> and, and we're willing and, and we're willing to own that you know that it may actually be a failure but the whole point is how do we know until we go through the exercise sure well and it's interesting that you bring that up because it could also like it could end up being not only a proof that we shouldn't touch Shakespeare but really a testament to how great and timeless Shakespeare's writing actually was and I mean there are things to remind us of that all the time but what better way than uh, the possibility of a giant project proving even further that Shakespeare's language still is the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The standalone, the the strongest, I don't know. Genius work that it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's the thing. I think, you know, all of us are okay with that. None of us went into this thinking it was going to be anything more than what it is, which is, 
exercise and the artistic and scholarly challenge. And if it is a failure, then that's fine. Like, I don't think any of us are like, ah, or have a whole lot invested in it being, like, a huge success. I think it's really all of us, for all of us involved, it's, and, you know, obviously I'm generalizing, but I think for most of the people that I've talked to, from all the people I've talked to thus far who are on the project, it was really just about the exercise of it all. Cool. And uh, so, it, you know, it, it is, it'll be what it is, and if it's a terrible failure, then we'll just own that and hope that maybe all of our careers will... <laughs> Not suffer long term because we were associated with the project. <laughs> That's great. Now I'm curious uh, with with some of Shakespeare's most famous lines. I know these plays are, are down the road that will be translated. But with a line like "to be or not to be," has there been talk of like, do you translate that or do you keep it as such an essential Shakespearean line of text? Well, I can definitely only speak for me, but sure. I can definitely tell you my thoughts on it. To be honest, I feel like, and this goes into just like my background as a Shakespearean dramaturg, there are some lines that we all know you just don't touch. Yeah. Because they're iconic. And right. You know, like it's one of those things where people, even if they know, don't know every line in a particular play, word for word, there are some speeches people know, like, you know, there are Hamlet speeches that people know by heart, they, you know, the, the to be or not to be, you know, like, uh, you know, all, you know, essentially, you know, uh, Romeo and Juliet speeches, like, those are the ones that people know. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're kind of taught, both in school and just in practice, you don't touch those, like, you don't do any internal cuts, even if you, you know, need to cut it to, like, 60 minutes. You leave those passages alone. Sure, sure. So, so I think for me, like, if I was working on those, I would touch them. Okay. That's mm-hmm. because I know people are looking for those. Right, right. Like, and those are just sort of the iconic. And I think because they're iconic, what they mean, at least at this point in, in, our, in our, you know, sort of wrangling with Shakespeare, isn't questioned. Most people know what those speeches mean because that language is so iconic. Mm, right. Uh, and it's interesting. It's in like, that, there, there are certainly the most iconic lines, like to be or not to be, that is the question. But then there's also like lines that people recognize, like a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse, or frailty, that name right. is woman, or all these other. No. Like, where. I guess this isn't really a question, but just like sort of something that I'm posing. Where does the line get drawn between iconic, less iconic, and then text that you're allowed to mess with? It's like, where does that barrier sort of fizzle out? Sure. Good question. You know, I think, you know, I think that is going to be something kind of left up to the dramaturgical mm-hmm. slash playwright pair. Because, I mean, I agree, there's some, because, like, let's just be real, someone, as someone like me who delves into Shakespeare quite a bit and quite often, you know, I could, in my head, think all the lines are iconic because I'm used to them. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> so, I think, you know, and for me, to be honest, I also, uh, you know, this, this is going to sound terrible, but I, you know, quote, unquote, use my students in some ways to help me figure that out. Like, we just did a production, um, original Shakespeare's text of As You Like It. Mm-hmm. And, I'll, and at, at points, you know, as I was cutting for a particular time, because um, the, uh, the director wanted it around, the text to be roughly about two hours so that there's some things that she was going to do that was probably going to push it to about two and a half. And so she needed to make sure the text itself was at about the two-hour mark so that she could do the things she'd do without pushing it to like a three hour play sure. and mm-hmm. so, or is there a production. And so in the end, there are times, especially when I was, oh, is this as iconic as I think it is? You know, are these songs as iconic as I think it is? I would actually pose it to my students um, and, and say, okay, well, when you hear these lines, like, you know, and I'll play sometimes games with them. Like when you hear this line, which Shakespeare play do you think of? And if they could identify it right away, then I knew I better not touch that. Um, if, you know, if they had to kind of guess around it, then, you know, in some ways I'd probably put that in, like, the less, you know, kind of in that middle iconic, like, they, they knew enough of the story to know that, that that was a good place, you know, you could identify it to a particular play. Yeah. Um, things like, and then if it was, you know, people like, I don't know, then I was like, okay, maybe I can, I can get rid of this and it'd be okay. <laughs> yeah, that's great. 
You know, one thing I'm so, thinking constantly about as we talk about this is that the, the reason there's so much controversy is that people think we are, that, that you and the, the rest of the, the team at Oregon Shakespeare Festival are trying to change Shakespeare, but really what you're doing is just introducing 39 new plays into the world and leaving the old ones yeah. untouched. Exactly. Um, I used to joke that, uh, you know, it's not part of my contract as dramaturg on the play on project to sneak into people's houses and burn their, like, folios and their artists. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is not, you know, part of my job. And, you know, to be honest, you know, and as, like I said, back to, you know, my dual life as both a dramaturg and an educator, you know, would I teach one of the translations over... The, the original, to be honest, probably not. Mm. But part of the problem, or like not problem, but part of it is that usually by the time my students get to me, they're already, they've already been introduced to Shakespeare. Mm. Most of them, even if they don't like Shakespeare, quote unquote, they understand Shakespeare's value. And then I find that it's my job to just like inspire love of Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, I think if I was teaching in a totally different circumstance, maybe, like if I was teaching an intro course, or maybe even a non-majors course that introduced Shakespeare, maybe, depending on, and a lot of it for me is like sort of feeling out who are the people in the room with me. Are they are they just as interested in Shakespeare as I am, or at least open to Shakespeare, or do I is there some prodding that needs to happen in order to get them to open up about it? So, you know, it's kind of interesting, because like, you know, as one who's on the project, to even say that I'm not sure if I would teach one of them is, really interesting, but then, like I said, I'm also using it as a pedagogical tool as we introduce, you know, this particular translation by Tim Slover into our classes and making them go through the exercise with us as well, so. And it's also a good companion piece for an actor. I mean, even just cold reading that Time of Athens passage, I didn't really know what was going on, and then when I read the translation, right. I go, oh, that can help me correctly or, you know, better act the actual text. I, told, I knew right. what was going on. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And so that's, and that's, that's really what it is. I think we're really just using it as a tool. And it's really just an excuse for a bunch of us that actually like to geek out about Shakespeare to play around in his language. So, <laughs> it's never as a bad thing. I'm concerned it's a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we have come to the point in the podcast where I just want to get in the normal little shenanigans that I like to do on this uh, this show, and one of them is a rhetorical device of the day. Um, and mm -hmm. today, for the rhetorical device, I have chosen Hypophora, which is an instance in which a character asks or poses a question and then immediately answers the question afterwards. So, for example, uh, there's an example in Hamlet's Oh, What a Rogue and Peasant Slave Am I soliloquy, where he asks, what would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? And then immediately responds with, he would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech. Um, another instance is uh, in Julius Caesar, where uh, Portia poses a number of questions to Brutus, uh, saying, what, is Brutus sick and will he steal out of his wholesome bed to dare the vile contagion of the night and tempt the roomy and unpurged air to add unto his sickness? No, my Brutus, you have some sick offense within your mind. Um, one final one, if you want to read this, Mike, is um, Petruchio's... Um, it, he doesn't really pose a question, but Petruchio's speech um, at the beginning of his famous scene with Kate... Oh, the say that she rail, why then I'll tell her she sings as sweetly as a nightingale. Say that she frown, I'll say she looks as clear as morning roses newly washed with dew. Etc. So, we, we can see that this may have a number of different um, uses with rhetoric, but what, what do we think overall that this does to, to form an argument? Are you asking me first, or does it matter? Sure, anybody that wants to jump in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to answer my I own question in your hypophora. Right. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I think, in general, how much we use that now speaks to sort of the larger conversation that we've been having about how much Shakespeare 
in some ways has also influenced our language because I do that all the time in my classes, mm. all the time. I pose a question and essentially answer the question in some ways at least to get the conversation going. Sure. Um, so there's always that as why one would do that. But then in some ways it's also about, uh, at least in terms of building an argument, or building, you know, a dialogue of some sort. I think, you know, back to, you know, one just the example that I just gave about doing it in my class, it starts people off. But then I think also having people in your head reckon with the question and the fact that you can answer as well, to me, indicates that someone is assured of a particular train of thought that they're going down. Mm-hmm. Uh, just even thinking about some of the examples that you gave, you know, they answer the question because they already, they know the answer. Um, and it's interesting how you say the like asking the question gets somebody's train of thought going like if you just give the answer like if hamlet were just to say you know he would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with or cleave the general ear with horrid speech or whatever it was um by by just giving the answer, he's he's making a point. But by asking the question first, it seems like oh, this answers the obvious answer to this very important question. Um, yes. So it does give yeah. further emphasis to it. What do you think, Mike? Put your oh, mind. I totally agree. I mean, yeah, building the argument of I didn't want to step on your toes. But yeah, um, and you're much more eloquent than I can be. Um, but yeah, posing the question so you go, audience, think about this. Well, here's my answer, and I'm right. Audience, think about this. Right. Well, no, I'm right in thinking this. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Right. So what do we yeah, think about hypothesis? It is useful. <laughs> yes. it, it is. And, and, you know, in some ways, I think it also gives that moment, you know, whether talking to audience or talking to another character on stage, I think it does bring, it, bring someone into a conversation, even if you don't mean for them to speak. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The fact that the the fact that the question is asked actually emphasizes its importance, right? Right. Cool. Or in Portia and Brutus's case, he's not talking to her, so she has to do both sides of the conversation. Mm, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, the final thing, the final shenanigan, I guess that I wanted to bring up is the uh, segment I call Tyrant Producer. And that is, um, basically the rules are a tyrant producer that is crazy, wild, manic, gives you $3 million to direct a production with one stipulation, you have to use his crazy idea. And today, mine is actually drawn from a production I recently heard about in Long Island that a friend of mine was in, um, and the production was Richard III, where everybody else has a disability of some kind, and Richard III, or the Duke of Gloucester, is the only one in the play that has no disability, i.e. is completely healthy, strong, fit as a stallion, whatever. How, if we were to direct this production, would we make that work, and what sort of issues would we come across with the story? That's so interesting. I actually like that idea in some ways because, you know, this gets back to the, oh, I'm going to get all, like, crazy academic in a lovely way on it. But, you know, the question is, why would someone want to do that? And my first thought is obviously drawing some sort of parallel between potentially how, you know, able-bodied people are viewed in our society versus um, people with varying uh, amounts of ability. And my thought is, you know, what if we were to say potentially that, because I mean, you know, if we think about who Richard III is, you know, could we draw a parallel between, you know, something that's going on right now in terms of people who are, you know, able-bodied, potentially making these decisions that affect everyone around them in Mm. a way that is uh, counterproductive to the whole of society. Um, and so, you know, like, I'd have to kind of dig a little bit deeper into this, but I could see that some of the language about how, you know, Richard is not able-bodied could really sting in some ways if it's directed at someone who is able-bodied because they've become the other in this situation. You know, so, I don't it, know. it makes me think of kids in, like, middle school or early high school where there's, like, maybe a bunch of girls who have pierced ears. 
Right, and then yeah. like there's this one girl who, who her parents haven't allowed her to get her ears pierced yet because she's too young, and because her body is untouched and un um, unpierced, I guess the people with the piercings, though because they make up a larger majority, are able to sort of shun her for that reason for not being marked. Right. Well, I just, so just kind of yeah. sorry. Ahead, as a society, we've always kind of whatever's different, we don't like <laughs> at first. So yeah, if right. anybody else is disabled, then an able-bodied person will definitely be shunned from society. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's interesting. It reminds me of a really production. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I was going to say there's just some really interesting ways that once you kind of dig into this, it makes some really pointed commentary potentially. about society but that's just me being fun and thinking about the semiotics of it but anyway i'm done rambling go no no i I was just gonna say this kind of scenario reminds me of uh i heard that patrick stewart did a production of othello in washington where he played othello and everybody else in the class and the cast was of color and it's just kind of flipping the norm and what that says about the production and society itself it's Mm -hmm. fascinating yeah yeah i i mean i would totally take that money and also to be honest like you know, just sitting on, last year I sat on a panel at the Literary Managers and Dramaturg Association uh, of the Americas, there, the conference, and uh, on diversity and inclusion, and having people on the panel who run uh, theater companies that, um, you know, either touch on subjects of varying, you know, types of ability, or employ actors of varying types of ability. Part of me is like, this would be just a an amazing opportunity to get um, a potential constituency of people who are undercast, as Absolutely. far as I'm concerned, in yeah. the American theater scene on a major stage. Let's do it. Sure, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, give me some money and let's make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, yeah. So this seems like as good a place as any to come to the end of the podcast. Uh, Martine, is there anything you would like to talk about or plug? Sure. I think if anyone happens to be in the state of Utah in uh, April of 2017, come on by. Or even if you're around in April of 2016, stop on by for the reading that we're doing. Our reading is open to the public, and so will the production. So come on by, check it out, you know, and then that's pretty much all that I have. I'll be at the Great Plains Theater Conference working on some new plays. If anyone happens to be in Omaha, at the end of May, beginning of June. Come on out to that, too. <laughs> That's awesome. So, Martine uh, is the dramaturg on the project, and Tim Slover is the playwright for Two Noble Kinsmen. Martine will also be working on the uh, Play On project translation of The Comedy of Errors with playwright Christina Anderson, and keep an eye out for that as well. Um, for myself, my name's Kyle Downing. Uh, you can Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at NYShakeSky or at NYShakeSky, depending on the social media platform. You can also watch my videos on YouTube, NYShakeSky. And if you're interested in a coaching, you can contact me at NYShakeSky at gmail.com or visit me at www.kyledowning.com Shakespeare. And don't forget to keep an eye out and an ear out for future episodes of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. Thank you very much for listening, everyone, and keep up the hard work on your bard work.